and welcome to episode 28 of Sigma Sports Presents, Matt Stevens Unplugged. And this is the Lizzie Diagnan episode. It was an absolute corker of a chat, that is, when we actually finally got up and running. Now, she's an absolutely wonderful person, a fierce competitor, um, but as I said, she does come across as a nice person, but freely admits in our chat that she enjoys nothing more than deciding when to make other people suffer. Only on the bike, I may remind you. Uh, listen out for the RQG, the Random Question Generator, which is quite alarming, uh, which can go off at any moment. And we also test her local knowledge. She's from Otley in Yorkshire. So grab a brew, sit back and enjoy. Hello and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Matt Stevens unplugged passing his Lizzie Dignan is one of the most iconic riders of her generation, without a shadow of a doubt, with results longer than I can actually put in my notebook. So do look it up if you've got a few hours to spare. But for instance, she's a former multiple national and world champion on the track and road. She's also won a hatful of monuments. And since becoming a mum, she's been dominating the UCI Women's World Tour. So I was really delighted when she took the time to spend an hour in my company to look back on her career so far. Uh, the conversation was very wide ranging indeed. And also also take a little glimpse forward on what's coming down the road. So check it out. Well, we're recording now, Lizzie. Um, first up, thank you very much for joining me on, on the podcast. I think we probably need to set a little bit of context to people that are listening. We've spent the last half an hour, haven't we, going through various technical hoops and um, we, we haven't fallen out with each other, which is really good, isn't it? Yeah, first victory of the season. I've made it onto the podcast. It, like you say, it took half an hour, but we're here now. We are indeed. We are indeed. Uh, first up, can you just what we norm, what I normally do is ask people just to set the scene. Can you just tell us where you are in the world and and just describe the room that you're in at the moment and what you can see immediately around you? Yeah, so I'm in Tenerife. Um, I'm here with Phil and Orla. I was lucky enough to have a family training camp and still be one of those people who's allowed to travel. So I'm in a, a little hotel room. Phil and Orla are outside and I'm, I'm trying, hoping that they don't come back before we're finished. And uh, and how are things going? I mean, obviously the, the, the season's not too far away. I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the problematic year, to say the very least, everybody had. But how are things generally with you? I mean, I've seen your bit, bits and bobs of social media. You look happy, you look fit. I mean, uh, are you um, ready and raring to go? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's always a weird time, like this last couple of weeks before racing starts you start to question yourself and probably overthink your sensations a bit on the bike so um I think I'm all right but Phil might tell you I'm a bit uh <laughs> a bit touchy maybe <laughs> all right okay uh, what, what does he mean by that what's he's trying to say oh I know um I think it's just it's normal you just start to overthink and overanalyze how you're feeling like have I done the right thing am I am I good you know and you just kind of want that first race under your belt to just establish where you are I suppose yeah I mean and your first race is of course on loop for the opening weekend isn't it which is going to be let's be honest with you we know what the weather can be like at on loop um and we know the weather where you are is absolutely glorious so uh there could be a little bit of a contrast when you when you head back to uh to, to northern Europe yeah but you see I'll have tanned legs so you know 50 percent there already really well, it's, yeah, that's a really good point. There's so much uh, in relation to morale. If you're tanned, white legs, it's not a good look, is it? 
<laughs> no, absolutely. No. Um, we were deciding whether to come out here or not. And I just kind of was like, you know what? The vitamin D is worth it. It's worth the risk of the travel and everything. I think you kind of being able to do those last kind of finishing efforts that I'm doing now are so much easier and more valuable under the heat of the sun I think so yeah I think it's an advantage if you can chase the sunshine a bit at this time of year. And how have you managed to bump into I know because of restrictions and stuff many of the teams are riding in kind of little bubbles and stuff but has all of your training been uh, alone or have you managed to catch any other cyclists out there and done some training rides? Uh, No it's all been done by myself yeah Um, I don't really I mean most of the people uh, most People have gone to Denia, actually, in Spain for training. Um, but we were meant to have Valencia, the race in Valencia at the moment. So, yeah. um, you know, there was no team training camp as such planned. So I just had this plan to do my own thing. And um, just before we kind of talk about um, maybe looking at objectives for this year in the past, I mean, I think it'd be remiss not to talk about a little bit about last year. I know there's a lot of negativity surrounding it. it was a challenging year for everybody I mean for you it was still remarkably successful although it was a truncated season but how how did you actually cope with that kind of lockdown period and obviously you got racing towards the back end of the year as we all know very very successfully but how did you cope um, what kind of mechanisms did you use did you find it easy or did you find it a particular challenge actually I was okay yeah I was I think I was particularly lucky that you know I have my daughter she keeps me very busy and we just kind of saw the positives in it. We were able to spend a lot of family time together. And to be honest, I was always kind of, I was looking at the news and nothing came as a shock to me. You know, it wasn't like when the Olympics was cancelled, I was in shock. I kind of saw it coming a few weeks before they even talked about it. So um, I felt lucky in fact that I was able to ride outside and I just kind of held on to the perspective that I had it better than a lot of other people, I suppose. And tried to just focus on the positives um so lockdown I mean we we lucked out it was gorgeous weather in the UK and yeah loads of family time and the pressure was off I mean I was still getting paid to ride my bike and not having to race it was quite good really <laughs> and, and I believe I think I read somewhere um that you're not really a fan of the turbo are you let's be honest I mean you've openly admitted that and quite a few <laughs> riders that aren't so I, is it true that you didn't do any indoor training during lockdown no, no, I didn't. I had to do the virtual Giro, which was hell. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> because, I mean, even setting up, you know, setting up the virtual GPX file was hard enough for me. So, yeah, it was it was tough going, but I would, I don't know, I think I'd rather go for a run than go on Swift. I'm definitely <laughs> not a turbo rider. But, you know, I'm in a fortunate position. I don't have to be, so... And did you, am I right in saying you spent most of your, the lockdown in Harrogate? It's that, because that's where you live, that's where you, you flip, flip between Monaco and Harrogate, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were lucky enough that we had a house there with a garden and we kind of had this decision to make. There was one flight out of Nice Airport back to Leeds and we we're like, do we get it or not? Right. And um, luckily we made the decision to get it. Otherwise we would have been in a very small apartment properly locked up and I would have been doing a lot of turbo so yeah we made we luckily made the call to come home to the UK yeah definitely definitely made the, the right call there I mean I mean uh, talking to lots of people they're you not know, on the podcast and outside of the podcast about that that kind of lockdown time and you know some people I mean to pick up on your point there about imagine if you were locked in that 
in a flat and there's there's many families who who live in you know tenement buildings blocks of flats who, who couldn't go out you know with, with small families and stuff it's i mean it must have been really really hard for some people but during during lockdown as you talked about you know going out for long walks and stuff and we did have an exceptionally beautiful exceptionally beautiful weather in the spring in the uk was there anything else that you discovered about yourself or anything else did you kind of look at nature for example from a different perspective or did you find out any other interests or did you just get on with a kind of pretty kind of standard family routine yeah I think that was probably the realization that um we're obviously just very boring people (laughs) (laughs) um, it wasn't that different to normal life and um I think the biggest realization was that just how much I miss my family and how valuable that allotted time that we have in the season to see my family is um so you know we just went I haven't seen my family for quality amounts of time in such a long time and that is beginning to take its toll and it's really difficult and um yeah um yeah I suppose I always knew I was a family person but even more so I, I really really miss my family at the moment yeah, I think we're all. Well, I can I can say that as well. I've not seen my yeah my uh, my mum for over a year and stuff. So it, it's very very hard. But I think yeah, without overly being overly predictive, hopefully there is some light at the, at the end of the tunnel. But uh, obviously, you know Phil, you know rides his bike as well, and you go. I, I know that you go out training with Phil to get to come. Do you you clearly get on very well? But do you ever <laughs> try and turn the screw when you're out training with him? just to get rid of a little bit of frustration sometimes or does he do the same I'm just wondering is there a half wheeling dynamic <laughs> where you're able to kind of get rid of a bit of stress when you go out on the bikes together uh not really no I mean I wish there was but he's just still so much stronger than me unfortunately right. he's, okay I think you know he does probably three or four bike rides a week and he seems All right. to be like 10 percent less than he probably was just overtrained when he was a pro and he's yeah healthy and fit these days so no I don't I can't turn the screw on him I wish I could yeah well maybe maybe as he kind of just gradually curtails his riding that there might be a day when you can actually kind of yeah turn the screws a little bit but uh yeah it's just a nice subtle way to kind of uh if you're not happy with somebody just to let them know isn't it but uh, anyway maybe that's just one one for the future but what I'd like to do Lizzie if that's okay is um just go just go back in time um and I'd like you to tell me if you can remember about your formative years a little bit you know you're brought up in Otley um, and more about Otley later by the way um, I am gonna well there's gonna be an Otley quiz I'm gonna quiz you about your hometown um, oh, wow. don't don't worry it's multiple choice but just so actually maybe I shouldn't have told you but anyway um, your first formative years on the bike can you remember the first kind of time you threw your leg over a bike and went out for a ride and found that it was something that you that you really loved Oh, that took a while to come, actually. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm from a very active uh, outdoor kind of family, but we were never cyclists. Oh, you know, right. I only really knew about the Tour de France. I didn't know about anything else. But um, I was actually talent spotted at school. So British Cycling had this initiative where they went into schools, truckload of bikes, um, and, yeah, basically gave kids on school fields these really basic tests to see if anybody had talent um and then you were taken through various processes and eventually given a bike and a coach and I think it was some personal washing vouchers we got at the time um (laughs) but yeah I I was just an all-rounder really just an all-round sports girl at school I was in all the teams nothing special or anything um and yeah they 
kind of gave me the opportunity to do this test. And I really remember that day because there was a, a lad called Richard Robinson and um, he was a cheeky lad. He was actually, you know, I'd been at school with him since I was four years old. So we knew each other really well. And he taunted me and said, Lizzie, I bet you can't beat me. And luckily okay. I raced him. And, and they spotted me because if he'd not done that, I really just would have ridden round and not even tried. So I wow. owe a lot to Richard Robinson, actually. Yeah, that's amazing. It's yeah. funny, isn't it? The little um, they call it the butterfly effect. Just a kind of tiny little moment in your life, a little, a small decision that maybe takes you on another path. That that's really, I didn't. That's fascinating. I mean, I think if correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that scheme called the goat was go ride, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, go ride and talent team. That's right. And uh, and they were, and I remember I was actually still racing coming into the autumn of my career back then, but I remember racing against um, the GB talent team. I think Cav was riding for them around then, and they were sponsored by Persil. Yeah. That's right. I mean, do you remember all the at bus stations? There'd be pictures of the national squad, wouldn't there, at bus station, uh, like at bus stops. I don't know if you remember all those, like Paul Manning, Mark Cavendish, yeah, yeah, with the Persil kit on, <laughs> all the yeah. adverts. Yeah, I do remember. And I think, um, to be honest, as a 15 year old who was waitressing for very little money at the time, the fact that I got 500 quid off the lottery and my mum got a load of free personal vouchers, you know, I was I was was sold on the idea. I thought I'll give this cycling a go. So yeah, it was funny. Like you say, it was really just a turning point in my life. And would you mind telling us exactly that you, you, you raced you did this little race. Where was it? Was it in the playground around some cones? Can you just describe your first ever bike race? And clearly already at that point, you know, you had quite a competitive edge to you, didn't you? Yeah, I was very fit just because of all the team sports that I played. So it was, yeah, very basic, some cones on mountain bikes. We raced around these cones on the school field and it was actually Phil West who came to my school. Oh yeah. um, He became my first coach and I think I was particularly lucky that he became my first coach as well because um it was always very fun and skill-based and you know we didn't take it too seriously and I had a really good introduction to cycling from him I think and so what obviously you you won this race how how much did you win it by and did you did you do like a little salute or anything or did you shout out or did you just go oh yeah what what was I'm just interested in what your reaction was to winning the race uh I definitely wouldn't have done a salute no (laughs) Um, I remember it was just before the summer holidays and I went home and I told my dad that I'd be riding for Great Britain (laughs) and he was like yeah whatever Lizzie and uh the letter to say that I'd been invited to the next stage of the you know the testing procedure didn't come until around six weeks later so um yeah it, it was a funny time but yeah. really cool yeah kind of it's kind of surreal really that the opportunities that that's I mean uh that that go ride I mean there are I I forget that you were you were kind of discovered that way and that's absolutely it's, it's absolutely fascinating but but for your formative years um you spent your time on the track didn't you I mean uh, and what what was do you remember your first foray your first ever ride on a track bike on 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 the wooden track yeah and I was absolutely petrified (laughs) there was there was definitely no like you know introducing us slowly we we did a thing called hills and holes did you ever on the track no no you're in this long line and the person on the front is dictating the line around the track so this was Westy at the time 
Hill West and he would literally turn right on the banking so at 45 degree with all these kids like 15 kids behind him with no brakes no idea what they're doing um smashing into each other and losing teeth there was a girl who lost some teeth oh god yeah it was <laughs> a pretty brutal introduction but um a really good introduction I think track racing is a really good way to build your skills and start cycling actually Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I you know unsuccessfully rode a bit of track, but back in the back in the mid mid nineteen eighties. But I really really enjoyed it, and I think uh, yeah, I, I never kind of flourished on the track, but it, it did. It teaches you very very quickly how to control the bike, especially when you haven't got the brakes there. But I guess as a youngster as well, you're not quite as worried, are you? Because if you haven't ridden on the road the brakes much, it becomes quite natural and quite innate, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. You learn that braking is just a waste of energy. So, yeah, you don't. I mean, you don't need them on the track. So you try and avoid using them as much as you can on the road in the peloton. That's for sure. Indeed, and then obviously that led. You spent quite a few years on the track. Lots of success. And do you remember a particular point in your career? And obviously, I mean, looking back then, what was it twelve, fourteen years ago, roughly? Um, things were really different in terms of the landscape of women's sport, women's cycling. At what point did you think, I could maybe make a career of this and then double down your focus? Or were you just living in the moment at, at that particular time? Do you remember a conscious time when you thought, yes, I want to do this for you know, the foreseeable future? I think there was a couple of stages. So when I was 18, I had to kind of decide, you know, I, was, I left school. Would I go on to the, uh, I think it was called the development program or something like that, where I'd be funded, I think it was £6,000 a year, okay. um, or go to university and get into debt £30,000 or whatever. And yep. it was a very simple equation for me. I was like, I'm going to just enjoy this opportunity and see where it takes me. Um, and the London Olympics was kind of on the horizon at that point, and I wanted to try and do the London Olympics, but as a track rider in my head at that time. Um so I kind of I lived that that life up in Manchester. I was a funded track rider, um, but I never knew that I could make it on the road, and I never knew that the, I could possibly make a career of it until I started to do some racing on the road, and I was offered a contract by Cervelo, um, yeah. and that was a turning point for me where I was actually being offered, you know, a living wage from somebody, and that's I think a turning point where I decided, okay, I'm I'm gonna stop the track and try and be a professional on the road because you at 2008 i'm just reading you know looking at your direct trajectory in terms of your you know track then you went then you rode for halford's bike hut didn't you that was a mixed male and female team wasn't it i mean i was still racing at that particular time um and then you went to lotto didn't you and then it was to Cervelo, wasn't it so what do, do you remember your first competitive kind of road road race there or was it something that you did to augment your track riding what was that transition like from the track to the road so I always used to do road just to kind of fill the summer. So I often used to go to Belgium and do the Kermes racing and then um, do some like 1.2s or whatever, um, not any big UCI racing, just just to have a summer of racing and learn the ropes. And then um, in 2012, well, I think it was 2011, um, or was it 2010? Anyway, I, w- I was continuing on this trajectory of trying to do track at the Olympics in 2012. And then they decided to take the points race out of the Olympics and replace it with the Omnium. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, was the turning point because 
I was not a good, om- I was all right at the Omnium, um, but I was never going to be, you know, the likes of the girls that are winning golds now, like Laura Kenny. And, you know, I'm, I don't have that 200 meter flying start in me. So um, the decision was kind of made for me at that point mm-hmm. that I was going to focus on the road and, and try and become a road rider. So, um, yeah, my first real road race it was probably the Road World Championships in support of um, Nicole Cook. Okay. In uh, 2008, when she won the Olympic title and then she won the world title in Varese, I was in the breakaway all day. Um, and yeah, just just remember thinking, this is actually what I want to do. I've always had more passion for the road than the track. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that must have been amazing. Uh, that notice of support supported Nicole got the rainbow bands. And it, uh, did you kind of look enviously at Nicole on the podium, the rainbow bands, and think, "I fancy some of those one day"? Did you? Did you? I mean, you must have done. Yeah, completely. <laughs> I, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd won a world title on the track, and um, it somehow didn't seem to be on the same kind of. Yeah, how do I say this without offending all track <laughs> No, no, I think no. Just get no, there's, there's more. Yeah, it's 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 a different. I know, I know what you mean without even having to say it. Um, yeah, I just it's not taking it. Yeah. Oh. Random question oh. alert. Random question alert. Is this you? Yeah. Um. Sorry about it that. It is time for oh, random question. I thought my computer was dying. <laughs> <laughs> The random question generator. It's just coming through. I'm just going to tear off um, the, the the printout, and I'm. This is a question I've never seen, Lizzie, and that I'd like you to answer. Uh, I've never seen this question at all. It's a little bit weird. Uh, and apologies. Here we go. But yeah, yep. Here we go. You've been given an elephant. You can't give it away or sell it. What would you do with the elephant? <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've got nothing to do with these questions. These are completely uh, randomly generated by our Sigma Sports computer. Um, an elephant, crikey! Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I don't. I'm not allowed to give it away, and I can't sell it. No. What do you do well, with it? I have no choice but to keep it then. Yeah, but let's assume that it's not in your Monaco apartment. Let's assume it's at your house in Harrogate. I mean, I suppose there's a bit more space, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm useless with animals, so I couldn't tame it or look after it properly. Yeah. I think I'd give it. Well, no, I wouldn't give it to my cousin. I would just ask my cousin if I could keep it on my cousin's farm and maybe paint it in cow colours so it felt like it fitted in a bit more. <laughs> That's a. Cr- I do like the way. Yeah, you some really good lateral thinking there. So mm-hmm. lend it to somebody who has a farm in the family and paint it as a cow yeah. that's lateral thinking right there fantastic stuff and you could then visit it you might imagine that you could sort of to all could adopt it as well and she could sort of ride around on it couldn't she yeah why not i mean if, if, if we're going down that route why not that's indeed cool. yeah yeah well, thanks very much. Really well, <laughs> well anyway um no i mean it is it just to get back to your point i mean it's funny isn't it that there's certain points and things that happen in your life that are out of your control that actually lead you on this different path. You talked about your competitive spirit at school doing that race. And then, of course, the change in, in, in the regulations or the change in the disciplines at the Olympics, which made you focus on the road. 
Um, but but here you are. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most successful um, cyclists of all time, really. When I, I mean, it, I'd need another podcast to read out all your results. I mean, most people listening know them. Um, but just before we do look a couple, you know, do look at a couple of your your successes. When you look back at your career so far, uh, in terms of your kind of psychological preparation and stuff, do you ever reflect much on on the success, or are you constantly somebody who is always looking forward? Um, in recent years, I've tried to look back more. I'm definitely getting better at living in the present and celebrating moments, like. I would say earlier on in my career, that was something that I failed at. I wasn't great at. Um, it, like winning the world title in Richmond, it was an incredible experience. And I wish I'd try. I wish I'd just been able to enjoy it more instead of yeah. thinking about Rio the year after and putting so much pressure on myself. But I think I've got better at that as I've got older. And do you ever, I, I asked this to somebody the other day. Actually, I asked it to Cassia Nuiadoma and one of her her big win wasn't it Amstel Gold I asked her if she ever watched it back to psych herself up and she said yes so I'm going to ask you the same question is are there any races because they're all available most of them are available to watch on YouTube aren't they these days have you ever watched a cheeky race back on your own and just thought yeah I absolutely nailed it that day I haven't no but you haven't right okay Phil's always telling me I should do that but I, I have a bit of a weird rule for myself that I don't look at anything um like and if I give an interview or say this podcast, like, no offense, but I won't be listening. <laughs> I won't be listening to it. I don't read any of the interviews that I give or, or any of that. I just find that um, I overanalyze and worry too much. And I think it's better off just accepting what's been said or written or whatever and just not really focusing on it. And yeah, I don't know. I know that's different to watching a race and probably watching a race. I'd. I'd, uh, yeah, maybe I'll try it. Just feels yeah. a bit weird. I, I, it does feel a bit weird, and but um, again, I didn't win that many races, and because it was so long ago, nobody filmed them anyway. So I haven't really got that option. <laughs> but your point about not listening back to the podcast and, and reading interviews—it's you know, it's some, I, I've, I've, I must admit, I've not listened back to any of these podcasts. Um, because I'm in them and I'm and I know how they went. Do you know what I mean? It's um, yeah. I, I listen back to sometimes the little funny bits and the little jingles we do from a technical perspective to see if they work or not. And I just look at people's feedback, but I don't ever watch races that I've commentated on again because I lived it at that moment and I don't feel the need to actually listen back. So I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah, I think it's just you know it's easy to be too self-critical, and I think even with like you know. I've done little bits of commentating myself and I think, God, it's so hard to get it right in the moment. And if I listen back to myself, I probably, what on earth am I going on about? That is, you know, I'd, yeah, it's just, there's no point in doing that because, yeah, normal, I mean, I stand by most of the things I say generally. So I think, yeah, just let it be. Yeah. And and, and think, I mean, again, reading, reading, and I, I, I've obviously read a lot of interviews with you and, and some, some really interesting things that, that, that come out and that are unearthed, but because uh, you're a little bit of a perfectionist. So if you're a bit of a perfectionist, going back and looking at the imperfections would frust- potentially frustrate you even more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, just just to go back in time again a little bit more, 
Um, and I'm going to ask you about the worlds again because I, I, I kind of would like you to kind of semi relive it a little bit just to, um, for us. Actually, I'm going to ask you that now. Do you know what we talked about the, the world? And I was I was on commentary duty for that World Championships that you won. Um, and I'm going to be again lay my cards on the table. Um, I shed a tear uh, when you crossed the line uh, as winner. Um, I properly was welling up. Carlton Kirby was commentating alongside me. Um, he called you across the line and he threw to me. And I just, and then he had to start talking again because I couldn't say anything. It was that powerful. I mean, and what that meant for so many people, uh, and also the um, the immense amount of pressure that you were on going into that race. It's not as if you kind of snuck up and won it, and it was a bit of a surprise. You you went into it as one of the red hot favourites, didn't you? Yeah. When I look back at that now, I think I really yeah give myself a pat on the back for what I was able to achieve on that day. Um, I was absolutely flying that season and yeah like you say I was favorite going into it and I was I was on my own with four laps to go like I was the only British rider left in the race and it was all on my shoulders and um I don't know I just had one of those days where it just all came together I'd never lost faith in the fact that I was going to win it and I don't think I've had a moment like that since where I've just felt so like self-assured I just yeah. did not feel under pressure at all. So, like, physically, I never thought, oh, I'm going to get dropped. Or I was really just dictating it. I was deciding when I was going to make other people suffer. And I think as a bike rider, that's probably doesn't come that often. And when it does come, it's such it's great fun. That's what bike racing is all about. When you're the one who gets to dictate who's suffering, that's, you know, the fun aspect of it. It, it can be. And, I mean, somebody might listen to that and think that's a bit perverse but that's <laughs> the very nature of elite sport I mean um you do derive a little bit of pleasure on making other riders suffer and, and, and cycling is probably the best example of that because it's so visible it's an endurance sport primarily most of the training is hard um, racing is hard and the vast majority of the time let's be honest regardless of your kind of ability you spend a massive percentage of your time suffering don't you and most of it's because it, it's been dished out but when you're the one dish who is dissing it out and the tables are turned there is a strange pleasure to it and and once you're in that place you actually feed off it and gain even more strength it's a strange bizarre but quite quite wonderful kind of place to find yourself isn't it and as you say it's very rare yeah it's very rare most of the time you are just groveling and thinking when is this going to stop so to be able to be the one who's in the position to dictate it is really exciting for me it's more about not the pleasure of seeing other people suffering it's more the pleasure of the tactical game for me that is one of the things that I love most about cycling and if you are suffering too much you actually can't really play with the tactics you're just getting to the finish line whereas when you when you're that strong, you are able to dictate the way a race is ridden. or and, and that is, yeah, that's really nice to be able to do. And that's what I loved when I was a points race rider on the track, just being able to dictate a race tactically. It's like a game of chess. And, right. Um, yeah. They're few and far between those days. So. <laughs> they are. I mean, you, although saying that, you seem to have had, uh, when you look at your results, the, the amount of monuments you're picking up, uh, you've had your fair share. But just, just get back to Richmond. Um, I am going to ask you just to talk us through just the last couple of Ks because I, I, it's a wonderful course. Well, obviously, I didn't go there, but I I know you don't ride on Zwift, but I've ridden it numerous occasions on Zwift because um, mm-hmm. it is one of the courses there. And you've got – it's essentially – it's a course of two halves. It's basically – 
two really steep kind of cobble well one's cobble well, both cobbled yeah two cobble climbs then a, a kind of series of descents and then that long horrible drag up to the line so coming into those last couple of cobble climbs just talk us through the last the last couple of k's how you were feeling and what you actually did so there was quite a large breakaway up the road um and the dutch rider in the breakaway was amy peters um and to be honest, she would have been capable from winning from the breakaway, but I knew that the Dutch wouldn't risk it because they had too many kind of A cards in the pack, you know. So I knew that they would close it down and they left it till the last lap. So that was a bit nerve wracking because I obviously just couldn't, I couldn't do that alone, you know. So I had to yeah. gamble a bit that they were going to do that. And then, um, yeah, um, it's kind of sat tight, watched other people attacking over those climbs. I knew that the last cobbled climb was maybe too um, too early to go for me um, because the bunch was so big and I was on my own. And, the, you know, the Dutch had still such a strong team. The Italians had a strong team. They still had Bronzini there. So I knew that they could easily reel me in back, you know, if I was out there solo. So I, again, just kind of stuck to my plan going into it. I knew that I was going to attack on the final climb Um and it looked strange for people. I think they saw me attack on the final climb and I dragged out maybe 10 or 15 riders. And that was always in the plan. I knew that it was going to be essentially like an 80% attack. I wasn't attacking there to win the race. I was just attacking there to drop the sprinters, the pure sprinters. So I attacked and um, yeah, there was about 15 of us. And um, the final straight was kind of off camber to the right hand side, so I stuck to the left hand side of the road completely. So I, you know, I wasn't blindsided by anybody attacking, and I just stayed on the front and kept the pace high. Um, well, it wasn't ideal leading out my own sprint after just attacking, but no. I was kind of stuck in that position, and I didn't want the pure sprinters to come back. So yeah, I kept it high momentum on the left hand side of the road and waited for somebody. To go early in the sprint and they did luckily Anna van der Breggen launched a bit early and I just went round her at the, at the last moment and won the race and didn't quite believe it myself I think when I crossed the line I know it was um I mean most well a lot of the kind of stills and images of you crossing the line from the uh the the, the, the photos are of you with your hand over your face in a, in a kind of state of semi-disbelief yeah, just, you know, you do, you spend so many years working towards a goal and then finally it's reached and, and it's a bit of a surreal moment. It's hard to take it all in. And, um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a great victory salute, that's for sure. <laughs> I think it's a, I don't know, it was just very, I mean, it was a great, it was a great race. And um, obviously the World Championships generally is a bit of a slow burn, isn't it? But when you look at the riders that were around you, some of the all-time greats of, of this era of women's cycling, I mean, it, I mean, you... It was just, it was wonderful to watch unfold. And uh, um, at what point then did it did it finally sink in that you were the world champion? Was it maybe on the podium when you had the the rainbow bands? And, and actually, did you did you go to bed in the jersey? How, I wonder how long you kept it on for. Um, no, I mean, one of the small regrets from that world championships was that it was for me personally. It was in America, so no family or friends were there. It wasn't like a European world championships where the podium is outside in front of an open crowd that have just watched the bike race it was a bit weird it was in like this commercial center okay um, in the middle of kind of a trade show <laughs> right so, yeah it was a bit odd um 
the, the podium. But I think as soon as you hear a national anthem, that is quite special. Um, and sometimes now, even when they randomly put on the national anthem, like they did in Liège, which I thought was funny, um, but a nice surprise. There's something special about hearing your national anthem. And I think it, that was the moment where it sunk in. Yeah. Um, and no, I didn't sleep in the jersey. Um, <laughs> I could have done, oh. maybe. Yeah, where is it now then? The jersey. Oh, um, it's in a box. Um, it's in a box. Oh, yeah. So you, are you not one of these people that likes to? I mean, some people frame lots of stuff and have have, have stuff hung up. Others are kind of very a bit more discreet and keep things tucked away. But um, that's that surprised me. So you haven't got, or have you got a replica up uh, on the wall or something? No. Do you know? I'm a bit, uh, because we live in like a really small apartment, um, I'm a bit of a, a clean freak and I like clean, <laughs> well, I, I don't know, I don't like clutter and I know okay. that sounds ridiculous, a rainbow jersey is not clutter, but um, it's it's one of those things where I think when I grow up and get a real house, that's where I'll, you know, I'll have a rainbow jersey spot. I'm just not in, I'm not in our forever house yet, but I definitely will put it somewhere and where do you where do you actually talking about your forever house where do you think that would that would be is oh. that would, would you like to settle in yorkshire or would you was it would it be abroad or have or have you not really thought about that with phil yet oh i'm terrible i'm addicted to right move um <laughs> i'm addicted to right move harrogate right move france like i'm yeah one day ask me and the next day i'll have a different opinion um I absolutely, like I say, I'm a very much a family person and my roots are in Yorkshire and I feel that inevitably we'll probably end up in Yorkshire. But part of me um, questions whether we should give France a go because I do like the sunshine. Yeah, I, I must admit, um, right? I mean, the availability and the, the access you've got to looking at houses online, my wife's the, the same. She's always on right move, but it could be it's like the UK because we are looking at moving at the end of this year probably up north somewhere where it's a bit cheaper but um right move uh france as well but then also big houses in the in the, in the middle of nowhere in america she's always showing me these as well but there is an addictive quality to looking at houses and my wife's just so into it always sending me pictures of oh can we then we could move here and it's like well it's, the, it's in the middle of virginia you know what we're going to do there oh, I, I might have a look <laughs> <laughs> there are some absolutely insane bargains in america but uh, they're generally a little bit far flung, especially in upstate New York and stuff. Honestly, for like 100, 150 US, and sorry, 150,000 pounds, you can get five or six bedroom detached plot on, um, yeah, six or seven acres. Honestly, it is nuts. But Phil's don't let, yeah. oh, Phil will hate me now. He'll be going, flipping it, Matt, what are, you up, what are you up to? Phil's like, what budget have you just put in? <laughs> No, you, there are some deals to be had. That is that that is for sure. That is for sure. I mean, project. It's fine. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, moving on again. Um, obviously, you've got little Orla now, who was uh, two two and a half. Am I right? Roughly yeah. two and a half. Yeah. Um, I saw you took her out on a on a picnic the other day. Um, when you're out on your bikes, that was that looked lovely. Uh, yeah, well, it might. That's Instagram versus reality, see. <laughs> I, um, yeah, Phil and Orla had gone up to the like a woods that they go for a walk in sometimes, and I was out on my bike, and I was meant to do intervals, but I felt rubbish, so I thought I'll just go and see them in the woods. <laughs> so, um, yeah, overall, a bad day for me on the bike, but a nice day as a family. Yeah. 
Oh, good stuff. I mean, we know that a lot's been talked about um, about women's sport, women in cycling, and just and women in general in terms of uh, the way they've been you know, treated. Really, over the well up, up to kind of now, things are still changing. Still, things are still evolving. Thank goodness. Um, but you obviously had all when you took a year out of the sport, and I know you've talked about it a little bit, but I would like to explore it just a little bit in relation to, you know, did you? I mean, you obviously became pregnant. Um, and I'm just wondering how that was for you in, in terms of, I know, I know the team were, were apparently quite supportive, um, but generally what was that period of time? Did you look back at it and think, yeah, I was really well treated or did you look back and think that was really hard? Because um, it's the men and women are just treated so differently when it, when it comes to paternity uh, in business and, and in sports as well. Uh, it was a weird time, yeah, because... I think the weirdest thing for me was that it shocked people so much. Right. Um, like even friends and family were so shocked. And I thought, gosh, have I really just become this one-dimensional bike rider in everyone's eyes? And Right, okay. And it, and it was a bit sort of surreal, yeah. You know, I thought, well, come on, guys, you know, I'm almost 30. I'm married. So, you know, I want children. So what's the big shock? Um, and... Yeah, it was a it was an interesting time. There was definitely different reactions from different people, and um, yeah, some disappointing, um, some encouraging. But overall, I mean, it was definitely like the best time of my life. Having that year yeah. off from from the pressure of professional sport and just kind of reconnecting with stuff that made me happy away from the bike was really important and has definitely made my career longer. I think I would have quit cycling had I not had Orla when I had Orla. So you had Orla and then you, you said it was the most wonderful time of one of the most wonderful times of your life, which you can fully understand. I mean, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a father. Um, my son's now 20 odd at university but I do remember it fundamentally changing who I was actually um, I know we're talking about very very different uh, sets of circumstances but when you what changed you as an athlete in relation to the way you looked at things obviously there's, there's no doubt that when you become a parent it is it's such a seismic shift in in in, in everything isn't it in every single way let alone being one of the that the best sports people in the world at your particular discipline so how how did that change you as as not so much as a person, but as an athlete in the way you kind of approach things? I think it made me realise um, that perfection isn't actually um, attainable or sustainable. And okay. um, letting go of that um, kind of gave me more headspace and more enjoyment on the bike. Um, obviously, like if you've got a newborn baby and you're up three times a night, you you're idea of perfect perfect recovery etc is completely out the window and yeah you know, if if all I needed me then I was with all I wasn't considering that that would mean that my bike riding was any less going any you know not going as well and I think it just it made me realize that potentially previously I was overtraining, under fueling um all these things that you always want more as an athlete, and actually, more isn't always better. I've, I've mm. realised um, smart training, um, balance—all these things that make you a more well-rounded person actually make you a better athlete as well. I think. Yeah, and because once you have a child, regardless of what you do in life, suddenly, um, well, previous to to having a kid, 
you kind of seem to have a bit a fair bit of time and um i guess we're all kind of quite egocentrical because everything revolves around ourselves but when you have a kid suddenly you know you're around the child's orbit aren't you everything centers around the child and life is can't can't just carry on as it did it has to center around looking after this this fragile beautiful little human that you brought into the world and but what 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 I found is that you kind of, and I was training when I was, um, I was looking after Josh with, with my, with my wife, but, um, you really come to value your time and you can, I found that I was training far more specifically as well. And cause every single li- little bit of time that I had, um, was of more value and became more important. Did you find something like that? Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, I've always been someone who values quality over quantity. I'm not the person who's going out and doing six hour rides. I'm definitely someone who um, focuses on quality. Um, But that has definitely been sharpened, I suppose, by having all that. And I think, like you said about you have so much time as an athlete, and I used to find it almost suffocating, that kind of recovery period after riding my bike. Like I'd I'd go out and train really hard and then just do nothing with my day. Like, yeah. Or, and it just became too much. Like, it was sustainable for an, an amount of time until I'd reached some big goals. But then it just felt like, is this worth it in the end? I don't really have a life outside of cycling. I'm just this kind of one dimensional person. And, and I just found it, yeah, suffocating. And now my life is just full of all sorts yeah <laughs> and sometimes that can be a bit overwhelming and I think oh what, what on earth have I done this for um but obviously not having all of um but you know why do I sometimes think that it's possible to do it all but it is and I, I much prefer having um a busy life definitely yeah that, that's wonderful um right Earlier on, I, I kind of alluded to the fact that we would. Um, I had a quiz up my sleeve, an Otley quiz. Um, are we going to do that right now? Because you were born and brought up in Otley. I am. I am correct in that, aren't I? Yep. So it's now time for the Otley quiz. The Otley quiz. The Otley quiz. Now it's time for the Otley quiz. Wow. There we go. What what do you reckon to that? It was different than I expected. I wouldn't call it a jingle. I'd call it like <laughs> a, a rave. <laughs> the Otley rave. The Otley rave. Actually, we might actually change the name of the Otley quiz to the Otley rave. That is superb. Anyway, we've got four questions for you. Uh, Lizzie um they're all multiple choice so don't worry I'm not going to kind of try and do your legs when it's uh, not a history test but um they are quite varied as well so without further ado here is question one okay as a child you attended Prince Henry's Grammar School in Otley which was founded by Royal Charter okay way back in 1607 but by which British monarch okay so uh, your school had a royal charter in 1607, which meant that it was allowed to be. Now, was it A, James VI, B, Elizabeth I, or C, Mary I? Do you know, I did a school project on this and I've forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's got a proper little bit of history, your school, hasn't it? Because it moved as well, didn't it? It's actually, the original school is now a pub. And the, the school that you went yeah, to yeah. in about 1920 is actually uh, somewhere else. Yeah, and we're not a 
because people always think it's a grammar school like as in you have to have a test to get in but it's not it's just a normal school but it can't have a different name because of the royal charter that's right yeah yeah so i knew i knew um, (laughs) we'll go with elizabeth Go with Elizabeth. I'm afraid it's wrong. It's not Elizabeth the First, although she wasn't um, too far behind. All Mary the First, Elizabeth the First, and James the Sixth were only were all within about sixty years of each other, actually. And actually, interestingly, for history buffs out there, James the First was James the Sixth was also known as James the First because he was King of Scotland and England at the same time. There you go. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Thanks for thanks for saying wow. Because just a, a nice bit of appreciation of the amount of digging I've done today. Anyway, question number two. Question number two coming up. Okay, right. This is completely different here. Otley has five active Morris dancing teams. Okay, all of them have very interesting names. But which of these th- of these three team names is fake and not an actual team? So there's five active Morris dancing teams in Otley. Um, basically, I've made made up a name um, out of one of these three. So which one is the fake team, all right? Mm-hmm. Is it A, Hell's Bells, B, Otley Onions, C, Kitchen Taps? Wow. <laughs> yeah. One of the th- two are real, one is fake. <laughs> well, I think I recognize Hell's Bells. Okay. Um, onion seems a bit weird. I think onions is fake. Correctamundo. The Otley Onions is not a Morris dancing troupe, but the kitchen taps are, so well done. Well deduced. So that's one out of two so far, so you're doing well. Um, right, number three. Quite a straightforward one, this. How many pubs are there officially in Otley? Okay. Uh-oh. How how many pubs in Otley? And there's quite a few. Um, yeah. Is there 20, 25, or 28 pubs in Otley? And a couple of the pubs apparently are just on the outskirts of Otley as well, but they're counted as Otley. Well, I know that Otley used to have the record for the most pubs in a square mile. Right, okay. Uh, but that was a while ago. Uh, I reckon I'd still go 28. It's 20, actually. It's 20, yeah. So uh, Otley has 20 pubs. There's actually a definitive list online. You can. I was going to test you to see how many names of pubs you could get, but I thought that just might be a little bit dull. So I, I didn't do that. But uh, no, there's 20 and not 28. Now, you'll be thankful uh, to know, uh, Lizzie, that this is the final question now coming up on the Otley quiz. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, y- you're a patron of the Otley CC, yeah? Yeah. Okay. When then was the club founded? Okay. Was it 1920? Was it 1923? Or was it 1927? Hmm. Oh, do you think they'll sack me if I get it wrong? Well, I kind of, hmm. Uh, (laughs) I doubt that they would, but they might be listening intently. And yeah, there's probably a little bit of pressure on your shoulders right now to get this right. I'm going to go 27. You'll be pleased to know that's the right answer. Yay. Congratulations. Well done. Thanks. So you actually got two, you got 50% there, Lizzie. Well done. I think that's pretty fair, to be honest, because a couple of them were quite weird, quite tough questions. Uh, but I think the one you'll be most relieved about is the fact that you're a patron. You got that one right. Absolutely. Yeah. Never in Great doubt. Great stuff. 
never in doubt. Nice one. Well, that was the Otley quiz. Before we kind of wrap things up, I'd just like to uh, tackle a couple more things, really, or look at a couple, a couple more um, kind of bigger issues, really, or not. And just wanted your kind of thoughts and observations. And obviously, now you're you're well into your career. You know, you're still incredibly successful, and and you've seen probably the most fundamental shift positive shift in 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 women's cycling and i just wonder what your kind of general thoughts are on that from when you started as a professional to now where we are thank goodness uh, approaching although we still got a bit of work to do parity for, for, for male and female cyclists so professional cyclists um still a lot of work to to be done but what are your kind of thoughts on on where you've come from and where you are now i just uh think it's been incredible the amount of progress in yeah, 10, 15 years since I first started being a professional athlete. Um, it's just amazing. If you'd have told me where I would be now, you know, when I first started, I wouldn't have believed you. So um, I think you're right. It's absolutely important that we keep pushing for change. And, you know, there's so much more to be done. But it's also important to celebrate the changes that have happened. And also, mm. I think it's really important that the changes that do come into play are sustainable and we don't kind of jump ahead 10 steps I think it's better if the change happens in you know more incremental steps and it is actually sustained change yeah I mean what specifically do you think still needs a fair bit of work I mean we are getting there year on year you know uh, the UCI are bringing in regulations where they're, they're going to try and bring the minimum wage up so there's parity between males and um, obviously men's and women's teams but what specifically would you like to see um changed or or develop even further and improve or is there anything specifically that you think yeah we need to do a lot more work on that particular area i think just media exposure is so huge and we're still so far behind um i think there's been some really interesting stuff recently like ruler they've sold out you know twice i think their women's only issue um, yeah they have yeah it showed that, that there is appetite there and i think the media does need to catch up still, although there's been improvements. It is, you know, newspapers, uh, mainstream media is still predominantly male sport and, and that has to change before we can get more investment, um, etc. So for me, that would be the biggest fundamental thing that could make a huge difference. And um, some of the new races, I mean, that are coming online as well, um, the, the calendar is getting fuller. Um, I'm just looking at your race program now, there's one race which obviously stands out, which is, you know, we still don't know the route yet, but Paris-Roubaix. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That must be really, really exciting as well as talk about, you know, a, finally a proper Tour de France for women as well. But Paris-Roubaix, how, how, what are your kind of thoughts on that as, as, a, as, a, as a proposition in terms of, you know, your um, kind of attributes? How, how do you think you're going to tackle that? It's interesting. It's really difficult to know. Like, I I definitely want to be there and I want to be there in in the best shape possible. Like, I'm targeting that. But it seems a bit naive to say I want to try and win Roubaix when I've not even ridden a Roubaix cobble yet, you know. So um, I'm going to do some recons. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time uh, looking at the course and understanding what it takes to ride on those cobbles because everyone says, you know, they're nothing like Flanders cobbles. So um, I'm really excited by it. I think that was something that was so encouraging during lockdown as a surprise to, in a pandemic year, get a new race. It was like, wow, you know, that is progress. And um, I just, yeah, can't wait to race it. It's a shame that 
our first edition will be during a pandemic and there won't be, you know, those crowds that there normally is, but um, it'll still be very special to race it, I think. Yeah, I think there's going to be, that's going to be very, very exciting. I'm, I'm yeah, so much looking forward to that. And wouldn't it be great as well if um, ultimately within within your career as well, you we had the opportunity for the women to to have the same set of monuments as well as the men because obviously you've you've um you've you've won um you've won the tour of flanders you've won the age best on the age which you won last year uh, a women's tour of lombardy and a women's milan san remo how cool would that be yeah very cool i would absolutely I mean, love to do a milan san remo like i i train up the poggio quite a lot because it's within riding distance from monaco and um yeah i think that kind of race would really suit me and really suit tricks like afredo too so yeah, I'm jealous. I'm definitely jealous on Milan San Remo Day that we don't have them. Great. I mean, there's, there, there is a hell of a lot to look forward to. And talk, talking about looking ahead a little bit, so you're, you're 32 now, um, you're a massive success. You're still hungry. You've got a contract with Trek Sigafredo through to the end of next year, which is wonderful. I mean, again, I would imagine you, you get asked this question. I mean, how long do you would you like to keep on riding? Is it purely going to be you'll just know when the time is right to kind of to step away from the sport or are you just year on year at the moment how how do you kind of look to the future it's really tricky to know when is the right time to retire I think I've, mm. you know, I've been fortunate to see like Phil retiring from professional sport and I can understand and see that it's not easy and it's yeah not something you want to do prematurely and I feel in a really lucky position that I love my job. Like I really understand being a professional athlete is the dream job. And it, I didn't yeah. always feel like that. And um, I'm at a point now where I really believe that and love my job. So um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to put a definite finish line on it. Sure. I just don't know, but um, definitely enjoying it more than I ever have. So I'll keep doing it as long as they pay me, I suppose. <laughs> that is wonderful. And I mean, okay, there's no end date on your career. I mean, that, and that's pretty, and that's actually quite a cool thing to have because it shows that you are still in love with it. Because it's just, well, how long is a piece of string? If I keep enjoying it, I'm successful. It fits in with fa- with, with family and 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 the happiness of you, of you three. Then you're just going to keep on going. But what about what about beyond that? Have you had any idea? about what you might want to do in the future, whether you'd like to stay involved in the sport or go off on a different tangent and try something new? Because I know that you, you're you quite a methodical planner and I'm wondering if there's a small part of you that kind of has got a bit of an idea or there's seeds kind of, I don't know, sprouting in relation to what you want to do, maybe kind of ten in 10 years' time, for example, or where you'd kind of like to see yourself. Uh, yeah, maybe that's the reason why I haven't got my retirement date fixed because I really... <laughs> Um, I think it's really tricky to decide on a career that's going to be as fulfilling and as exciting as this one. So I kind of, I think it's about coming to terms with the fact that, um, you know, the next stage might not be um, as exciting as this one. Um, Mm. But I I mean, I definitely think it would be nice to stay involved with the sport. You kind of, age creeps up on you and you realise that you've become an expert essentially in cycling um and it would be a shame to waste those expertise um by not staying involved in the sport and I really enjoy working with the younger riders on the team um so yeah maybe something like coaching or mentoring or directing I don't know we'll see that sounds great I mean knowing what you know now 
about everything in life, you know, your, your, all of your experience. And if you could transport yourself back to when you were, say, 10 or 11 years of age, what would you tell your younger self, if anything? Hmm. I would tell myself, um, that's a tricky one. Sorry to spring that one on you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, my youngest, yeah. In my career, I would say that it's it's about putting family first, even in the moments where you feel that you need to be... um, there are hard decisions, there have to be sacrifices, but there are certainly some occasions, certain things that within your family that you just shouldn't miss for a bike race or for your career. It's not worth yeah. it. Fair enough. Well, that's, um, I think it's got a lovely way to kind of, to leave it really. Um, it's been really, really lovely chatting with you. Sorry about all the technical difficulties we had at the top. Um, you have been waffling on with me now for over an hour and a half. So please, please forgive us for all the, oh, Random question alert. Uh, we're actually, I, I do believe um, we've got one more, uh, one more question. Oh, time for a random question. We've got. I'm, I'm really, really sorry. We're gonna, we are gonna end it with one more random crest, uh, question. Uh, it's only a short one. It's quite simple. So, and then you can, um, then you can go. Um, okay. Do Yorkshire puddings go with a Christmas dinner? Yes, I would. Oh. Uh, did you have them with your Christmas dinner last year? Uh, no, because because I made it. So we're not going to count this Christmas because it didn't happen. But last Christmas, me and Phil did the Christmas dinner at our house for the first time. And uh, we totally cheated and just bought everything. And um, yeah, I forgot Yorkshire puddings. Yeah, well, we, we did exactly the same. We bought everything from M&S pre-packaged, but we did buy pre-packaged Yorkshire puddings as well. Oh, they are nice. I mean, yeah, Sunday roast, I think they are. But some people, I believe, there's two different camps. Some people think, no, Yorkshire puddings shouldn't be on a Christmas dinner. But I, I'm, I'm with you. I think they should. Just one last thing on Yorkshire puddings. Have you ever tried them sweet? So you cook them exactly the same, but have them as a pudding uh, and put like golden syrup or honey or even custard on them. No, I haven't. I mean, because if you think about it, they're not either savoury or sweet until you put gravy on them, then they become savoury. But if you actually put uh, other th- sweet things on, they're, they're really, really lovely. So straight out of the oven, just get some golden syrup, just drizzle them on the top just for a tasty little treat, Lizzie. Absolutely gorgeous. I think I just, yeah. <laughs> you not. You don't sound convinced. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that desperate. Do you know what I mean? I'd just get a proper dessert. Fair like, enough. Blimey, that that was a brush off if ever I've heard one. Blimey, I, you know, I've never been so... Oh, oh well. Okay, we'll, we'll end the podcast on that very sad yeah, note. Give yourself, uh, a, give yourself <laughs> a nice cheesecake or something. Fair enough. That does actually make uh, quite a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Lizzie, it's been, um, it's been a real pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm sure people are going to really enjoy... To, to hear what you've had to say about a variety of different subjects and um you know thank you for for taking the time to chat on uh, on your day off as well and on your rest day and um just want to wish you all the best for this coming season pass my regards on to phil as well give a little all a hug and and just yeah thanks for being you no worries thanks for having me and yeah sorry i'm technically useless but we got there in the end <laughs> we did get there in the end no worries thanks very much 
Thanks so much to Lizzie for making me jealous of her legitimate getaway to sunnier climes. What a national treasure she is, and I hope she continues to enjoy her racing for many more years to come. Thanks as ever to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod, and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies? Or if there is a husband and a toddler hiding in an adjacent room, afraid of interrupting your podcast, why not recommend it to them too? Sorry, Felinola. And finally, a huge thanks again to Lizzie for taking some time to talk to me today. Thanks all, goodbye, and stay safe.